Welcome to Curated Conversations from the Center for Strategic and International Studies, bringing you the best events each week from the world's number one defense and national security think tank. To explore the hundreds of events we host each year, visit us at CSIS.org. Good afternoon. Welcome to CSIS. Uh, our event today is Mitigating Security Risks to Emerging 5G Networks, a topic that continues to gain interest. We have a great panel and an amazing opening keynote speaker, um, Commissioner, I'm sorry, <laughs> Jessica Rosenworcel, a little disorganized. The format today will be Commissioner Rosenworcel will give opening remarks. She'll be followed by a panel uh, of speakers that will be moderated by CSIS fellow Cleet Johnson, senior fellow Cleet Johnson. Um, I'm going to introduce Commissioner Rosenworcel briefly. Um, she was named as one of Politico's 50 politicians to watch over the next couple of years. Uh, that's pretty impressive. Uh, she has a long experience prior to serving at the FCC in telecommunications and public service, public policy. Prior to joining the agency, she was the senior communications counsel for the Senate Committee on Commerce, Science, and Transportation, which is really a perfect background for this stuff. So we're very fortunate to have her here to give us opening remarks today. So Commissioner Rosenworcel, please. Thank you, Jim, for those kind opening remarks. And of course, thank you to the Center for Strategic and International Studies for gathering us all here today for what is a very important conversation about security and next generation wireless networks known as 5G. Now this discussion is timely, like up to the minute. In fact, when I began thinking about how to start my remarks, I kept coming back to that familiar maxim, may you live in interesting times. And you know, if you do a little digging online, you will find that there's a dispute about its origin. There is one school of thought that claims it is based on an old Chinese curse. But there's another school of thought that says, may you live in interesting times? Well, it, its provenance lies elsewhere and perhaps with a British statesman. Still, the more that I studied that saying and the dispute about where it came from, the more I thought that referencing it was an apt way to begin. Because these are interesting times. Last week, the Department of Justice charged a Chinese equipment manufacturer and its chief financial officer with attempting to steal trade secrets, obstructing a criminal investigation, and evading economic sanctions on Iran. Last year, in the National Defense Authorization Act, Congress prohibited executive branch agencies from using or procuring telecommunications equipment or services from companies that are associated with or believed to be controlled by China. And in the meantime, key intelligence allies have joined us in restricting such equipment or are considering different ways to do so. Closer to home, at the FCC, where I work, we have proposed rules that would prohibit the use of universal service funds to purchase equipment or services from companies identified as posing a national security risk to communications networks or the communications supply chain. So the stakes 
are undeniably high. That's because next-generation 5G wireless networks are in fact the unifying fabric that will connect us all to the future. This is the essential infrastructure for the next generation of digital technologies. It will feature data speeds 10 to 100 times higher than what we know today, and with latency reduced to as little as one millisecond. And that, in turn, will power autonomous vehicles, foster advances in robotics, and expand the potential for machine learning and the possibilities of the Internet of Things. So what that means in practice is that the race to 5G is about so much more than the smartphones in our palms, pockets, and purses. Those handsets represent the epicenter of the last wireless revolution, known as 4G. On its strength, we built the applications economy and changed the way we live life online. But the coming changes with 5G are broader. Connecting the physical world around us will change everything from healthcare to entertainment to the way we work and even what work entails. Plus, deploying these networks promises a boost to our economy and millions of new jobs. So, it comes as no surprise that countries around the world are jockeying for position and control in this emerging ecosystem. In fact, I think the race to 5G has become a microcosm for the broader debate about global leadership and economic security. So that's some heady stuff. And to understand it better, I think we'd actually benefit from a little bit of communications history. So let's rewind. Let's roll back to some interesting times roughly two centuries ago. That's when the British Empire dominated global communications through its undersea cable network. It was known as the All Red Line. Now, the All Red Line has a place in the history books because with such a vast empire, Britain had both the political need for cables to reach far-flung corners of the globe and the expertise needed to lay them deep on the ocean floor. And this tangle of undersea wires stretched from Ireland to Newfoundland, from Sydney to Singapore, and many more places in between. You can think of it as the Victorian internet. Now, as a result, Britain led when it came to everything involving cable manufacture. It was an expert in cable operation. It dominated the supply of cable building materials. Their engineers were at the forefront of electrical science and so much so that they set the agenda for its research, dictated almost wholly by the needs of submarine telegraphy. No wonder then, when other countries had their submarine cables built, laid, tested, and repaired, it was with British contractors and British ships. In fact, a single British cable manufacturer, known as TCNM, at one point produced more than half the cables laid worldwide. Now, for other nations, that leadership had consequences. It meant they were dependent on the courtesies of a foreign government for essential communications facilities, even in times of war. But in the United States, we wanted to find another way forward. We wanted communication systems that were independent. 
We wanted capabilities in our networks that were less susceptible to foreign control. So what did we do? In time, we invented our way to an expanded market and a more secure future. And the spark for that future actually came in 1901, when Guillermo Marconi famously sent the first wireless message across the Atlantic Ocean. It wasn't much, but the message, which was simply the Morse code signal for the letter S, traveled more than 2,000 miles from England to Canada. But those three clicks of Morse code were transformative because the United States took note. It provided a way, as it evolved, to communicate with moving ships, blast messages across international borders, and bypass nationally supported telegraph monopolies. We were all in. But the British, they determined this new technology could never challenge their dominance in cable. Well, we all know how this story ends. The all red line gave way to a new era of communications. The cable system dominated by the British was supplanted by a more diverse system of interconnected radio networks. And in the United States, we saw an inflection point in the development of communications, and we seized it. Today, I think we are also at an inflection point. What happens with the next generation of wireless services has vast consequences for our economic and national security. The choices we make now about how these networks are deployed can result in communications technologies that are more powerful by many magnitudes. And getting them deployed early matters. It provides advantages in scale, in standards, and in device specifications. But I believe it is no longer enough to be first to 5G. The networks we deploy must also be secure. And to build 5G security effectively, we must build a market for more secure 5G equipment. That means making sure our companies can continue to innovate and encouraging other countries to invest in 5G security too. Now that's a big task. And as with all significant endeavors, the hard part is where to start. But I have some ideas about where the FCC should begin. So first, the FCC must work with other agencies to help manage supply chain risk. Late last year, the Department of Homeland Security announced the creation of the nation's first information and communications technology supply chain risk management task force. Now that name might not fall off the tongue quickly, but that public-private partnership is going to develop recommendations to identify and manage risk in the global supply chain. And the task force includes representatives from the Department of Homeland Security, as well as experts from the Department of Defense, Department of Treasury, General Services Administration, Department of Justice, Department of Commerce, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, and the Social Security Administration. In addition, there is expertise brought by representatives from telecommunications carriers, equipment manufacturers, and cybersecurity companies. It's an impressive list, to be sure. But there's one agency that's missing. The FCC needs a seat at this table. Leaving the agency with primary oversight over communications out is neither prudent nor wise. 
Moreover, as I mentioned at the start, the FCC has an ongoing proceeding that speaks directly to these issues concerning equipment restrictions with the use of universal service funds. So I think good things come to those who ask. And it's time for the FCC to speak up and secure a commitment from the Department of Homeland Security to participate on this task force. We should be working together. We should develop a common approach to 5G security. Second, the FCC should charter a new 5G security council. Now, in past generations of wireless technology, it's been our practice to enjoy their benefits before fully preparing for their risk. With 4G and its predecessors, cybersecurity was often an afterthought. It was something to work on when deployment was substantial, and it was something to manage when problems arose. Though the capabilities of these earlier generations of wireless service really pale in comparison to those that will emerge with 5G, the vulnerabilities have been real. They range from risk with SS7 networks to the rogue use of cell site simulators. What we have learned is that retrofitting security after the fact is difficult and expensive. So I think we need a more forward-thinking approach to 5G. Cybersecurity needs to be front of mind. Now, the good news is that 5G already features many security improvements over earlier generations of wireless technology. Plus, 5G standards are actually still in early days. Hundreds have yet to be developed. On standards and so much else, there is a lot of front-end work left to do. And that's where what is known as the Communications Security, Reliability, and Interoperability Council comes in. The Council is a federal advisory committee that provides recommendations to the FCC on high-profile security-related issues. Its two-year charter comes to an end next month, and I think the FCC needs to recharter and reinvigorate this Council, and when it does, it needs to identify 5G security as its primary focus. To this end, three things need to be a part of its mandate. More study on security technologies to mitigate the risk from the Internet of Things. More study on network function virtualization to mitigate denial of service attacks. And a new study on 5G supply chain risk management that recommends specific mitigation techniques. And third, the FCC needs to make cyber hygiene a priority. You know, with the advent of 5G services, we are going to have wireless capability built into the world around us. This will provide a whole new range of opportunities for civic and commercial life, but as they multiply, it will also increase our service exposure to attack. And to prepare for this future, the FCC is going to have to expand its work to support cyber hygiene. Think of cyber hygiene this way. To keep our communication systems functioning, we are going to need routine and regular practices that increase security and reduce exposure to risk. The agency must build these policies into its day-to-day -day work. Consider this. Every device that emits radio frequency at some point passes through the FCC. Go ahead, pull out your smartphone or your laptop or your television. You will see on the back there is an identification number from the FCC. 
That stamp of approval means that the device complies with FCC rules and objectives before it is marketed and imported in the United States. Now picture this. Going forward, the number of devices could expand exponentially with 5G and the Internet of Things. So why doesn't the FCC use its equipment authorization process to encourage device manufacturers to build security into new products? To this end, it could seek disclosure from manufacturers that explain how new devices are secure throughout the expected life cycle of the equipment. This would support better security practices on the millions of devices headed for us with the Internet of Things. Or consider this. Telecommunications carriers are required by the agency to certify annually that they comply with privacy standards. There is, however, no equivalent agency certification required for security. What if we change that? What if with the next generation of wireless licenses, we ask that as a condition of holding this license for public airwaves, Licensees will have to certify that they have implemented the best practices for 5G security. For example, we could ask that licensees certify that they are using the National Institute of Standards and Technology cybersecurity framework. That way we can ensure that licensees have a structured way of thinking about network security and a common language for managing risk. Finally, the FCC should take steps to educate citizens on cyber hygiene. In our work, we regularly interact with consumers and consumer groups. We need to find more ways to do outreach that touch on the basics of consumer cyber hygiene, from downloading software upgrades for devices to assessing connection security when using unlicensed airwaves. So those are my ideas for getting this conversation started. These are early days in the deployment of 5G. And as I said at the start, they are also interesting times. But they're also the right time to ensure that communication security is front and center. Thank you. And uh, I'll just uh, uh, start by saying that uh, both Commissioner Rosenworcel and I left Rockef Senator Rockefeller's staff to go to the FCC. She, as the Honorable Commissioner Jessica Rosenworcel, myself as bureaucrat Cleet Johnson. Um, so, uh, but it's an honor to have her here today. And thank you all for being here for this discussion. I, I want to uh, follow up that 
that speech which laid out a pretty bracing uh, uh, look at these issues with a panel discussion. We have some, uh, some experts from uh, a wide variety of different perspectives. And I'll just quickly introduce and then we'll go, we'll jump right into the discussion. So immediately to my left is, uh, is uh, Ambassador Rob Strayer. He's the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Cyber and uh, in, in, in International Communications. Um, also a, a Hill veteran and, uh, uh, and a lawyer. So and a former colleague. Yeah. And a former <laughs> colleague, that's right. We've been in the trenches together on some cyber policy issues. Uh, John Costello is the director of uh, the Office of, of Strategy, Plans, and Policy in the newly named and organized uh, Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency at the Department of Homeland Security. So we'd love to hear, we'll hear your, your thoughts on the interagency processes and uh, an increasingly important role in the, in the uh, government industry partnership. Um, Chris Boyer is, uh, wears many hats at AT&T. Uh, among those is, is essentially the, uh, the cyber policy guru uh, for a rather, rather uh, large company. And he plays an important role on CISRIC issues. Uh, we'll talk about that acronym in a moment. Uh, also on the National Security Telecommunications Advisory Committee, uh, one of, uh, I think, three or four advisory committees that report directly to the president. Um, and has been uh, involved in a whole host of, of uh, privacy and security issues uh, in, in, in a variety of venues. And finally, we have Travis Russell, who's the Director of Cybersecurity uh, for Oracle, and he is also the Chair of the Network Security uh, Working Group uh, on, the, as Commissioner Rosenworcel mentioned, the Council, uh, the Communication Security, Reliability, and Interoperability Council, or CISRIC, which may be the worst acronym in all of uh, a town of acronyms, uh, but it, it's a very important body uh, that advises the, the FCC. And he's been, the, Travis was uh, not only the lead of that effort, writing the, uh, really the only comprehensive uh, report on 5G security that exists, uh, but he has also literally written the book not only on SS7 uh, diameter, I think, uh, whole host of wireless protocols. Uh, so we have a, a great panel here, and I, I just want to jump right in by, uh, let's start with, the, with our industry representatives. Um, it, Commissioner Rosenworcel laid out quite a, quite a challenge. Uh, um, it, the inflection point we're in, uh, building a market for secure 5G. So before we get into how, how we're gonna do that, can, uh, would you guys walk us through how you see, what is secure 5G? And is it, that's a, that's a pretty big term that uh, I'd ask you to deconstruct if you could. Yeah, I mean, um, so I'll, I'll, first off, I want to thank Commissioner Rosenworcel for her comments. And I actually think a lot of the areas that she flagged are very similar to the areas that um, all of us have been talking about. Um, you know, when I think of 5G, I think one of the challenges we have is that, is that um, we have a tendency to say, oh my God, 5G has got all these security issues. And we kind of speak of it as if it's a monolithic thing as if it's just, you know, 5G is one thing. But the reality of it is, is there's a whole host of different issues that are intertwined under that kind of 5G security umbrella. And so, you know, I've heard people talk about issues of like, you know, the, the devices, like 
or the IoT devices that are enabled by 5G, are they going to be secure? Um, we've had discussions about the, uh, the network itself. You know, is the 5G network, and, and, you, and even the network is not a monolithic thing. You have to break it down between the radio access network and the core network and even the application layer. And then we've had conversations about uh, whether or not the rate of 5G deployment in the U.S. is adequate vis-a-vis -vis, um, some other countries um, that I won't name. Um, and then we've had discussion around, you know, um, uh, foreign countries' influence over the standards process and whether that creates a security vulnerability. And then finally, you know, the, the elephant in the room around particular suppliers that might end up introducing vulnerabilities. So there's a lot of different issues that are kind of all intertwined under the 5G security umbrella. Um, I think as an industry representative, you know, we feel like um, that 5G is actually an evolutionary step in terms of security, that, that the 5G network for the first time um, we're going to have security, and I think Commissioner Wurzemarsel touched on this, is that through the standards process, there's actual work being done to build in security into the standards themselves as they go forward, um, which is the first time we've really done that. In the past, you know, security, as I think as she pointed out, has been kind of layered on after the fact, uh, but you know, through th groups like 3GPP, SA3, uh, there's a lot of work going on to build security into the standards. So from a standards process, we feel like security is actually moving in the right direction. Now you can raise issues about whether or not the standards um, that, you know, there are certain entities that are influencing the standards process. You know, I would say that there's controls to prevent that from happening um, in terms of the standards themselves. Uh, there's rules around that, but, um, but we feel like we're making a lot of progress in the standards. And then if you break it down and look at um, the actual device side, there's lots of different measures you can take to look at securing the IoT device side. So I really, so, so my main point would be that we really should look at, you have to look at each one of those discrete buckets of issues and kind of think through what are the solutions there, but I think that we are trending in the right direction. Travis, do you want to add any, uh, sure. any detail? Yeah, so, you know, I, I think the biggest thing that we, we face with 5G is this, for the first time, is a completely different type of network that we've never dealt with before. Um, I've been in this business 35-some-odd years, which is why I have such gray hair. Um, we've been trying for all of this time to do this convergence of, of data and voice and trying to combine this and using IT technologies in telecommunications business, and 5G represents that culmination. We are finally bringing IT into the telecom market. And in fact, if you look at, you know, SO7 and diameter and SIP, all of the technologies that we have been using for decades, all of that got thrown out with 5G. And it's, it's truly cloud-based, software-based, data centers instead of central offices that's the 5G network of the future. And that presents a bunch of different challenges. Uh, and, and, and like Chris said, we have to start you know, separating some of those, otherwise you know, security becomes this huge, big mm -hmm. discussion. Uh, certainly on the device side, certainly on the IoT side, and I, I feel we've made quite a few inroads, I think, on the IoT side. We're seeing a lot of work already in industry. You know, we, we took the lessons from SO7 we took the lessons from diameter, which by the way, the lesson we learned there is it's not SS7. It's not a problem with diameter. The, the problem that we found in the industry is that the partners that we connect to, that we trusted because they're a part of our trusted ecosystem, are not trustworthy partners. We found that a lot of these companies are complicit in providing access to rogue companies and to rogue actors. Um, and so 
with that in mind, that means we have to rethink our security strategy. And that's the work that's been going on in, in industry is how do we secure those network boundaries? And there's been a tremendous amount of work uh, done within industry. GSMA has done a tremendous amount of work. And you'll see, in, if you look at SA3, the security document 33501, is the first 5G security specification to come out by SA3. There's a lot of content in there that was a direct result of industry through GSMA saying, hey, wait a minute. We learned our lessons around exposing PII like MC. We've learned some lessons about being able to spoof networks and diameter. We need to put some controls into place from the beginning in 5G that will prevent and mitigate those types of events from happening. And so that's what you'll see in 33501. It actually has processes defined for 5G to prevent that type of activity. Um, so I think we're, 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 we're making a lot of inroads here, but we are just starting on 5G. Um, we still have probably another year to a year and a half mm -hmm. on release 16, and we haven't even defined how we're gonna do congestion control in a 5G network yet. So still a lot of work that has to be done in the standards. So I know everybody wants to get there as fast as they can, but we don't want to get there too fast. We want to make sure that these standards are complete and, and we've covered all of the bases. Travis, when release 16 comes out, is that, will, will that complete the 5G standards process? No, so the, so the way that standards work is um, 3GPP, everything comes into a release. So there'll be uh, a discovery phase where we define what do we want, what content do we want into a release. Um, that release then gets targeted towards 3G or 4G or 5G now everything, of course, is being defined for 5G. Um, in release 15, which was the, the last release that just got done, the focus was on 5G radio so that we could deploy 5G services utilizing existing 4G networks. And so that's what you're seeing today, by the way. It's 5G radio and spectrum being used on 4G networks. Um, the focus right now in release 16 which we're supposed to have complete, I think, December, but it's not gonna be December, is what about the core network functionality? What are the things that we have to build into that? And once that gets locked down, then we'll move to release 17, where we'll fine tune that, and there'll probably be three or four releases after that before we start moving to 6G. So uh, let's turn to, to our government uh, panelists and start, John, you, um, Commissioner Rosenworcel has some thoughts about these interagency processes. Uh, welcome to comment on that, um, but maybe before you get into uh, the, the role of the FCC on the, on the uh, supply chain task force, could you talk a little bit about how you see the industry efforts? Are they sufficient? Are they maturing? Um, you know, do, does, uh, and what role does the new, the new DHS uh, uh, CISA agency uh, play and, and what role do other interagency players? So I, I, that's a, honestly, that's a series of really good questions. Um, I, you know, supply chain over the last 10 years, uh, I'm talking about broad supply chain efforts have been a, a stopping and starting sort of halting uh, process in the federal government where some progress is made and then uh, things stall. And, and generally it goes between periods of major anxiety. What I've seen in the last year, uh, last few years and last year in particular is really a, a coalition of the willing starting to be built. And you're starting to see a multitudinous number of working groups 
uh, within the interagency, uh, you know, agents, departments and agencies themselves or the White House leading uh, groups try to try to get at the supply chain problem, whether it's, you know, a broader industrial-based conversation, whether it's I ICT in particular. Um, and that's sort of like when we last year when we were looking at, you know, reorganizing the agency and getting it, getting it, uh, a new name and leading into our uh, cybersecurity uh, summit up in New York, um, we realized that uh, ICT in particular is what we what we'd refer to as a national critical function. It's 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 a, where you have a confluence of different um, critical infrastructure sectors uh, that come together with a complex interdependency, and a failure in one or a risk in one has cascading consequences across a number one. So with that in mind, when we stood up what we, the National Risk Management Center, which is intended to study those national critical functions and work with industry to collectively mitigate them. Uh, we, um, we set up what we call the ICT Scrim Task Force, which uh, Commissioner Rosenworcel mentioned. Um, that task force is intended to, in part, to try to solidify a lot of the uh, federal government efforts on ICT supply chain and extend them into inter, uh, to industry. One of the biggest challenges we've had is, is you can't do anything in supply chain environment without having industry buy-in or at least getting uh, a good understanding of industry of what, what they will tolerate or what the reality is of, of, uh, of supply. Uh, it, acquisition and supply for um, telecommunication companies is, is obviously a huge part of their business and anything you do that's going to affect that is going gonna, is gonna to have ripple effects. So our goal was is to come together and try to identify that risk. Um, what we're doing in particular, if you'll t uh, allow me a moment, uh, we really have five work streams that we're, um, that we're trying to push forward. And this is on the task force? This is on the task force, which the FCC is a part of. They, they're, a vo they're a voting member on the task force, so they are, they are participating, they are participating members. Um, number one, and this was mentioned in the, the CISRIC report, is when we start talking about information sharing on supply chain, it's really difficult to really determine what that is. What does sharing threat or risk information between, between government agencies and between government and the private sector, what does that look like? You know, we have Sticks Taxi for, um, for, uh, uh, for uh, cyber threats, but what does that look like for supply chain? How do we, how do we uh, share that in a way that is uniform and consistent? Second is uh, threat-based evaluations of suppliers, products, and services. I mean, there's a number of different proprietary ways and methods to evaluate a product or a service um, and its relative risk. Uh, but, you know, trying, uh, like, the task force is really looking for a way to make that uniform and consistent so that we're all speaking the same risk language, we're all, speak, we're all working from the same, uh, same sheet of music. The third is uh, identifying market segments. Um, for qualified bid, uh, bidder and manufacturer lists. This is particularly important for uh, the federal government as it looks to, uh, whitelisting is a bad term, but it's trying to find um, trusted suppliers and reliable suppliers um, for, uh, for government procurement and acquisition. Fourth is incentives. Um, trying to incentivize security in the marketplace, working with companies to try to see what, what would they tolerate or what would be appealing or attractive to them that could change their purchasing or acquisition decisions um, towards original manufacturers or authorized resellers. And then finally, and this is germane to how I started the conversation, is uh, an inventory, which sounds incredibly uh, basic and elementary, but when you look across the federal government and you look across industry, you see a growing number of groups that are trying to get the supply chain problem. Um, 
we found it absolutely necessary to try to get an inventory of these efforts, what they're trying to achieve, and uh, trying to map some of the work that we're doing in the task force to mm -hmm. those, and how we could hook in, how we could benefit from prior work or influence other work going on in other channels. So, and, and what's the overlap, if any, at this point between the supply chain risk management task force and 5G security? There's clearly, there are some fi supply chain issues in, fi in 5G, and we're certainly gonna get to that elephant in the room. But, uh, but beyond just supply chain, what about standards and uh, you know, the, the, some of the issues that Commissioner Rosenworcel and Travis mentioned, network function virtualization, software-defined networking, how all this ties into smart cities and other, other critical infrastructure. Are we there yet? Or? Um, I think, I, to be honest, uh, I think the, at first blush, this, this task force is going to go on for a few years. And 2019 is looking to be like the year of 5G. Um, uh, judging from the number of speaking events or a number of uh, <laughs> conferences that are going on about it. Um, and, and I think that's, that's, that's your main. But what, first thing is first is if we're going to have a really constructive and productive conversation around 5G security, both on the supply chain front and threats affecting 5G, is we have to s develop and uh, produce the hard work of that language to even have that discussion. I think there's, I know that sounds, I'm not dodging the question mm -hmm. at all. Um, I think we, we are going to get there, but at first we got we got to do the basics. We have to walk. We have to crawl before we can walk. Before we can run. And 5G, we know, is coming. We know the stakes are high, and we know um, the manufacturers and uh, and the components we have in our 5G build out uh, the rest of this year and next year are gonna uh, are gonna set the stage for um, for our, our risk tolerance uh, uh, and national security for a while. Um, but Getting, getting it right and getting the basics right now, I think, is going to make a much more productive conversation later this year or, or early next year, absolutely. You know, if I might add. Yeah, absolutely, the, please. The issue of supply chain risk management really is beyond just 5G. Like, right. like the idea, like the goal yeah. of the of the working group should be to develop repeatable processes to or processes to evaluate um, supply chain criteria and threat evaluations for a number of different technologies, of which 5G is one. But there's going to be others, and so I think um, this, from an industry perspective, you know, I serve on the executive committee of the. Of the of the supply chain group, and I think I think the task force should really focus in on how can we develop. Um, um, you know, as you mentioned, there's a whole inventory of best practices and ideas of how to do supply chain risk management. Um, we should look at those and try to identify which of those processes um, stand up and are repeatable and can be used for a multitude of different technologies. 5G has its own set of issues. You know, I mentioned them before. There's, you know, there's a lot of different nuances there, but uh, I think from a from a best practices and standards development perspective, it should be focused more on kind of broad supply chain risk management, and how do you apply that to the different technology space? Well, I have one more uh, yeah, US-focused sure. question, and then we're going to go global, Rob. Right. Um, so it, it, it's one of the things that Commissioner Rosenworcel called for, uh, was, which is actually uh, part of the re recommendations of the CISRIC uh, report, is, is essentially to keep studying this issue, dive deeper, um, so it sounds like from the DHS perspective and from the industry perspective, uh, there's some agreement there. Is that right? Oh, we need, we're not, do we need to, we need yeah. to dig deeper? I mean, we're, like I said, we're at the infancy of 5G standardization. I mean, um, release 15 was the first body of work focusing on radio. There's still a bulk of work that has to be done for, you know, just the, the normal functions that we would have in a network that hasn't been fully defined yet. So. I think there's still a lot of, of work that needs to be done, not just in the standards, but also within the CISRIC, also within DHS. 
we need to be looking at this on a long-term basis, not a short-term basis. Uh, and so I, I absolutely agree, we need to extend that, but not just within CISRIC. I think it needs to be through a, a number of different agencies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, right. an, it's an iterative process, right? Yeah. I mean, you, you don't stop and say, oh, the standard's done. Right. You know, I mean, the issues come up, you, you make adjustments. Um, so I think, the, I think through the CISRIC, that's how we've, and we've been doing, for folks who aren't familiar with CISRIC, we've been doing CISRIC reports dating back on security, dating back to like 2003. I think, yeah. um, you know, it's, it's, we're on what, well, CISRIC 6? Yeah, the network, yeah, the NRIC, which is the predecessor to the CISRIC. So, I mean, this has been going on a long time. So these are iterative yeah. processes. They don't just stop and say, oh, we're done, right? Yeah. And I, I will say from DHS's perspective is we fully expect an iterative process on a lot of these mm -hmm. things. You know, when you talk about supply chain, you get into this sort of, uh, anxious paralysis when you talk about supply chain. What, what if we do this? What if we do that? I don't know if that would be or that would work or that not. I think what we're trying to do is we are trying to move forward to at least set a baseline. We do not want the perfect to be the enemy of the good. Um, that, that's not to say that we don't care about quality or like the, 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 the best that we can do, um, is we want to set a baseline that we can build on in, in the future. And so moving ahead with a supply chain task force is, is, is to be frank with you, our primary uh, sort of thrust to, to get that done. Mm -hmm. All right, so we've talked a lot about the inside baseball of use some acronyms like CISRIC and SCRIM Task Force, and we even brought in the NRIC. Uh, which we don't even, that's, that's the old CISRIC for, for those outside the inside baseball world. Um, this is all inside baseball U.S. government mm -hmm. talk. Um, what about, these are global companies, global supply chains, the global race to 5G. Uh, what, are, what are we doing internationally? What's the, what, uh, what if anything, and please, please fill us in, what is the U.S. government's and or allied international strategy to win the race to secure 5G. Right, I'd be happy to cover that. Uh, I'll try to avoid the use of acronyms in everything <laughs> I say, although working in, in the government, there's a lot of acronyms around this all the time. Uh, first of all, I wanna thank you and thank uh, CSIS for organizing this panel on such an important topic. Uh, but tremendous, uh, tremendous colleagues to be with here and uh, Commissioner Rosenwurzel as well. Um, you know, the, the, the headline that we have with our international partners is that our future national security and economic security depends on having a secure set of communications networks. There is so much data flowing around the world that it's impossible to just isolate one country's network and think that's secure, therefore I'm fine. We're all influenced because of the nature of the cloud and the computing that's occurring across borders that we need to continue to have a secure network wherever that data is flowing around the globe. Uh, in particular, uh, I think we need to prevent three things. One is unauthorized access to that data. Second is the disruption of the functionalities that we expect to occur uh, from, from the, the processing, the Internet of Things, all the um, new transformational uses that we talked about uh, uh, earlier in this discussion. And third, we need to make sure that networks are not a venue for the introduction of other types of malicious cyber threats that could cause the manipulation data or the malfunctioning of uh, those types of systems. Um, so as we look about at uh, the 5G network, we not only have that criticality of those, uh, of those functions that will occur, we also have to think about the, uh, the, the blurring of the line between the edge and the core in the sense that um, almost anywhere on that network can present a potential attack surface. So the attack surface is expanding. And so we need to be much more cautious about what kinds of equipment we introduce into that. 
And because the nature of 5G relies so much on software, software-defined networks, and updates to software, we need to have confidence that those who are involved in uh, updating that software or uh, in the management of those systems are, are secure and not introducing vulnerabilities through those software updates. So with so much at stake, we talked to our partners about how important it is to continue to seek to have trusted and secure networks. Uh, we think there are, there are country agnostic principles that should guide us going forward. Uh, just with regard to tender offers and sort of bids, we think that there should be fair, commercial reasonable terms that are not influenced by corruption and that are uh, done in a way that, uh, that public in both the, the country that's uh, putting out the bids and to uh, vendors around the world can easily see the transparency of those processes. Uh, when it comes to the technology itself, we have significant concerns uh, with countries that have such a close relationship between their intelligence community and their vendors. For example, Chinese law, including their intelligence law, compels their citizens and their companies to participate in intelligence activities. Unlike the United States, there's not a, there are not checks and balances on that. There's a one party in charge. There are not, uh, there's not an independent judiciary. There's not independent oversight by Congress. Uh, in particular, I think when we think about trust, we also gotta think about the values behind that. And uh, we've seen a company like Huawei recently indicted for numerous deceptive practices. Uh, those that relate to deception to evade uh, the Iran sanctions uh, laws as well as uh, deception to steal intellectual property and to actually have a policy in place to reward those who steal intellectual property for the company. That, that should raise significant concerns with regard to a company that does that. And lastly, I'll say about values, a, a country that uh, uses data in the way that China has to surveil its citizens, to set up credit scores, and to imprison more than one million people for their ethnic and religious background should make us, give us pause about the way that country might use data in the future. And in particular, I think we'd be naive to think that that country and the influence of its companies would act in ways that would treat our citizens better than it treats its own citizens. So with that, we have substantial concerns about uh, relationships like that related to vendors, but it's not just about that one country. No, that, all right, so let's, let's uh, continue that trail with regard to the, to the supplier issues, but also uh, more generally to the, to the standards and, and market competition uh, that, we've, that we've been talking about to date. I'll start with you, Rob, and then go down, to, go down the line. Um, what specifically is the U.S. government doing about it? Multilaterally, bilaterally, with regard to industry government collaboration? I'd love to hear uh, your take on it, and then John, and let's, then let's hear the industry take about, uh, about that question. Yeah, we're talking What to, are we doing about it? We're talking to partners around the globe about this. The, the upgrade to, to 5G, we're raising at the highest diplomatic levels. We're making sure that uh, policymakers, the most senior policymakers and governments, are aware of the momentousness of this decision and what is at stake in the decision they're about to make. Uh, I think we've always, already sort of touched on this and that, that the sort of generational nature of um, of, of 5G, the transformational nature of it, means there'll be a whole generation of uh, sort of lock-in with regard to that, those, the products and services from particular com companies going forward. So it's a mm -hmm. big decision. So we highlight uh, 
the momentousness of it, as well as what we see as principles that should be applied uh, in, in making those decisions. We see there are a lot of news reports about uh, you know, our, our closest allies, uh, Canada, the UK, Australia. Um, there was a report last night about, uh, about the European Union. Mm -hmm. I don't know if there's any light you can shed on that, but uh, I would love to hear if uh, what, what, your, what your take from, uh, from the official perspective is. Well, we're, we're having you know, individual conversations with different countries, so there's, you're reading about them in the press. Um, it should be no surprise that we're having these, given you know, the, the, in, the uh, very uh, deliberative and direct impact that we want to have uh, thinking about these, these processes and, and the decisions that are going to be made. And as, as I said before, it's not just, you know, it's in our interest to protect our own networks, but we realize the interdependency that we face in the, in the decisions that are being made uh, around the world and what that means for future uh, technology and the future model for open and uh, open, interoperable and transparent uses of data around the globe. And, and what about on, uh, so again, supply chain and suppliers is one part of this, but uh, what about the other elements of, of the of 5G security and how we promote that first at home and then uh, and then among like-minded or allied countries? Well, I mean, I, I will piggyback off what Rob was saying, is a, even just um, sort of in our exchange, in our discussion, and I think in a lot of cases, a, a Rob and I are, you know, and, or people we work with are in the same room discussing these issues. Um, we really can't emphasize enough, again, how momentous a decision it is. You are making a series of decisions that are gonna define the next generation, uh, like landscape, the lifeblood of your economy and uh, the very uh, the very environment in which you will contend likely with foreign adversaries um, for control. Um, so you can't emphasize that enough. Um, you know, as far as like messaging at home and abroad, right now a lot of our conversations with uh, with our closest allies is is trying to understand the full range of options and seeing seeing. Exp not experiment, experimentally, but taking the opportunity to look how other nations are dealing with ICT threats now um, and seeing what, it, you know, the, the pros and cons of particular approaches. I think the, the U.S. is still, is still um, we're still debating and we're still deliberately working through how we're, you know, how we would, you know, big picture look to uh, mitigate large-scale risk to, uh, to telecommunications networks. Um, internally, uh, you know, we are working on, uh, on a, a better understanding 5G risks to critical infrastructure. Um, I think once we get a better understanding, I mean, one of the biggest problems we have is, is, you know, we don't have a lack of imagination, but the more complex a network becomes, the more, the more, you, the more you add to the stack, um, and then you have software-defined networking, it, the attack vectors are manifold. So the number of ways that the number of ways that an attacker could could get out a 5G network or manipulate it or to, to manipulate or steal data is becomes exponentially increases as the network becomes more complex. So it's difficult. I think to I think right now it's difficult. Besides some of the obvious examples such as attacking IoT, it's it's difficult to really make a set of visceral examples that I think the public would understand. But I think in, in discussions with industry groups, we've made it clear that it is a pressing concern. Uh, supply chain, uh, specifically ICT supply chain, is a number one priority for our agency for 2019. Um, 
I think once we have a better understanding and can, I, I think, can give a better concrete examples uh, that we think the public would, would, would digest, I think you, you'll see more from us on that. But uh, right now, it's, it's discussions with industry and really trying to understand the threat better. So I'd love to hear your take on, uh, on the market and, and the role that not just the U.S. government, but, but also other allied uh, governments um, can take with regard to uh, imbalances that may exist uh, in the market. Um, so and feel free to be specific if you like. I'll try to avoid that, but uh, <laughs> but uh, I will. Uh, I'll say a couple of different things. You know, one is is that if there's concerns um, in the U.S. government about particular suppliers, uh, which we all know what that is, um, my general view is there ought to be a consistent policy that's applied across the board. Um, I think there's a challenge right now in that there is still the potential for some disparity because there isn't a consistent policy, even domestically. Um, so I think there should be a policy, and whatever that policy is, the second question then becomes, does it scale? You know, our business is all about scale. Um, you know, you, suppliers uh, need to have access to broader markets. I don't think the U.S. can just do it by itself. So, so A, have a policy. B, make sure that you have enough scale that it can be applied uh, where, um, you know, we really need to get allied countries or with similar views kind of all on the same page about how to deal with this issue. Um, I find it disconcerting that we hear in the news every day that you know, one country is considering certain things, others are considering something totally different. Um, you know, if we end up in that place where there's different strategies all around the world, uh, to me that's just a, a recipe for more of the same. Um, and we know that there are particular entities that have, um, have stated goals to dominate certain segments of the technology industry by certain dates. Um, and they're continuing to move in that direction. And I think we have to have a unified front to deal with those issues. And I don't think that um, solutions will work if we, don't have, if we don't do them at scale. Unified front, is that governments? Governments and well, I think companies? Well, I think like-minded countries need to have similar policy goals so that, because uh, I think what's happening is you're seeing um, certain entities that are effectively subsidizing businesses to go into, certain, go into countries and offer products at, at, at price points that, uh, frankly, a lot of other folks can't compete with or investing in technology in massive ways. And if that continues to happen um, for the next five or 10 years, I think, you know, where are we going to be in five years? So if you're really considering a policy strategy, it has to consider um, making sure that it's not just the U.S., but other countries that are in similar positions um, have a similar view. Otherwise, we end up with the, the current situation, which I think everything I'm hearing from the administration and from members in Congress and others is kind of untenable. Travis? So I'm a technologist, and it's real dangerous when you ask a techie guy about policy, but <laughs> I'll, I'll share with you some of the things that we're seeing, though, in the global market, because, you know, we're in a position where you know, we're bidding against some of the same opportunities uh, that Huawei and ZTE are, are bidding against and, and everybody else in the ecosystem. And, and we, over the years, uh, we've Travis, who are, who are the players? Everybody knows Huawei and ZTE. Who are yeah, the other so, players that yeah, you So, would, that you so by mention? the way, it's not three, it's five. Um, there's Ericsson, Nokia, Huawei, Samsung, and Oracle. And, and I know everybody says Oracle, they make databases. Um, Oracle actually has made acquisitions over the years that has placed them as one of the leading providers in critical infrastructure and telecom. Um, so we're in AT&T and we're in Verizon, we're in Sprint and T-Mobile and all of the, the big networks globally. So, so we have a vested interest in all of this. Um, I find it interesting, you know, the UK's position was, well, 
we're not too worried because we're going to test the systems before they go into the networks. And, and so they actually set you it mean up. UK's, the, the Huawei uh, equipment and services in right. the UK. And so NCSC started, uh, started this exercise. And a few months ago, they actually sent a, a communication to all the operators that said, you know what? What we've discovered is that Huawei doesn't build product and then ship it to all of their customers. They send servers to the site, and then they send hundreds of engineers to go custom develop the product on location. So that means that you can't test the product that's sitting in the network until you go to that each specific product and test it while it's in the network, and that's just not feasible. And so that's what they actually, in their recommendation, they went back to the operators in the UK and said, based upon this development model, you cannot test and make this secure. So consequently, British Telecom just announced that they're not only going to ban Huawei from 5G, but they're ripping them out of their 3G and 4G networks because they've now recognized that risk. And we're seeing this and hearing this in other markets as well. Um, everybody wants to take a conservative approach first because there's a lot of money involved here. And it's a big investment for a lot of countries. Um, so they're, they're approaching this rightfully so in a very careful manner. But, you know, as you follow these trends, you start to see more and more countries are reversing their decisions as they start to, to understand a bit more about how it is that the Chinese do business. And, and, you know, to your part about the IPR, where they actually get paid, you know, we've got Mobile World Congress coming up here in, in a couple of weeks. It's the largest telecom event uh, in, the, in the world. And I will spend the entire week chasing Huawei employees out of my booth because they get paid $5 for every picture that they take in my booth. So this, and this has been going on, by the way, for, for years. By the way, Mobile World Congress has called for an emergency meeting amongst its executive members uh, in Barcelona to also address this, this problem with Huawei and ZTE. So uh, be watching post-Barcelona. Uh, there'll probably be an announcement coming out of the GSMA even as they weigh into this. So, let's dig a little bit deeper on, on this. We have, uh, we all talk, everybody talks about the race to 5G. Um, and lots of countries and groups of countries and their companies are, are involved in that race. Um, one, of those, uh, one of those countries, China, essentially has an authoritarian uh, capitalist approach to industrial policy. And, uh, and Huawei and ZTE are a big part of that, and it's a global industrial policy. Um, the United States and its allies don't really do things that way, um, and I don't know if, if we want to, um, but if you have one very large country with two very large national champions that are, uh, that are part of an industrial policy, how does the, how do, you, do the United States and its allies and the companies that are based in, in uh, those countries uh, that don't have an authoritarian capitalist approach, how do they compete? It's a good question. Um, let me say that that's one of the reasons why I emphasize that it's important that as um, wireless operators and the sort of regulators that influence the wireless operators in countries around the world, is they go to put out solicitations for uh, 5G and next generation uh, telecommunications networks that they put out transparent bids 
and that they seek to have any financing done on commercially reasonable terms. Uh, there are well-documented cases, including with regard to Sri Lanka, of not transparent terms, of uh, not commercially reasonable loans being given, uh, things used for collateral, including the port in Sri Lanka, as uh, demanded as collateral for uh, to pay off uh, debts, um, that, that nobody doing business on an international basis would consider it to be the way to do business. So I think what we need to do is set the, the condition, uh, level competitive playing field. I think we have fair competition. Western technology and others will, could fairly compete against uh, these other companies. But when there is a financing mechanism that's backing them on an, an uncompetitive basis that is uh, uh, unduly influencing the playing field, there is not a fair competition that can occur between uh, different uh, equipment vendors. So I think that's part of the answer is just setting up the competition, the, the playing field on a level manner. So does, do you, and this is for the, for the whole group, um, do, do you need the united front that, that Chris mentioned that is like-minded governments and companies uh, to come together to help create that, uh, that fair playing field? Or can, does this one large block, China and Huawei and ZTE, compete against a whole bunch of uh, cats that hadn't, haven't been herded? Um, is that, is that can, can it be done like that? Or does, there, uh, does a united front need to be developed? I think it's important that we establish that there are certain basic principles and normative, uh, nor, normative standards that need to be applied in this area. Now, whether that, how that is coordinated exactly, I mean, that doesn't necessarily have to be, uh, a, if you will, a united front. But I think that that, that sentiment needs to get into the uh, way that uh, the countries that value uh, competition and having the best technology uh, for a much longer term of multiple cycles of next generation uh, technologies being deployed should recognize that that's going to be important for the future that we keep competition in this field and, uh, and do business as we have for you know, many decades and we've seen obviously internet and all kinds of information technology grow up in successful ways based on that, that model. Anybody else on that? Yeah, I think, you know, we're all for, obviously, competition. I think it's healthy, but, you know, the challenge that we have seen, and this has been over like a 10, 15-year period. Um, I'll give my Brazilian story because I, I, I love this example. Um, there was a, a proposal in Brazil uh, for a company called Oi, uh, and, and Huawei won that particular proposal for the entire network. And their challenge was, is because as I mentioned, they have to send engineers to go develop this stuff. They had several hundred engineers that they had to get visas for, get them into the country so that they could then go build the product. They couldn't get those visas, so they chartered a cruise ship. And they lived on this cruise ship for months, anchored off of the coast of Rio, and they ferried these employees back and forth so that they could go build these products. And on top of that, not only did they cut the price in half when they did that, but they also threw in there the entire network, not just the radio network, no extra charge, and service and support at no extra charge. And we see this being repeated in every single region. Um, so you know, it begs a couple of questions. One, how can a profitable company sustain any kind of profit if they're having to send thousands of engineers and house them and, and, and uh, sustain them out at all of these customer sites? And at the same time, do things like charter a cruise ship to house them in, right? Um, and, and I think another thing that we saw around loans, uh, Carlos Slim in Mexico, when he uh, 
was trying to get uh, his 4G network built out. The Bank of China gave him a billion dollars at 1% interest if he spent 80% with Huawei. It's real hard for any vendor to compete against those types uh, of deals when they come onto the table. And, and I've talked to you know, some of the rural providers here, and they've been very, very candid. We really don't care what the government says. When they come in and offer me something for free, I'm taking it. It's free. Why wouldn't I? Yeah, just, just to, I mean, I basically agree with what Rob said. I mean, I'm using the term unified firm, but that's kind of a euphemism for the idea that everybody agrees that there's some sort of strategy, right? That we have agreement with our allies and other countries on a way to deal with this issue. Because if the idea is to have fair trade or fair, or fair competition, you know, how do you do that if you don't have some sort of broader understanding amongst um, other countries that this is, this is what constitutes a fair, uh, fair level of competition. And I think the concern, I think what you're hearing what Travis is saying is that there are at least anecdotal examples of unfair competition uh, that's come up in many different examples. And whether it's, uh, whether it's, whether it's uh, financing, you also have OPEX issues and all sorts of different agreements that have been made. So I think the idea that there needs to be some sort of uh, general understanding of how to deal with these issues from like-minded countries or institutions is really what I'm driving at. And, and, and to be successful, it, really, it does require some level of scaling beyond just the United States, in my opinion. John? I think, uh, I think this is, you know, I think some of the Chinese uh, business practices that we've seen, which can be unscrupulous or unethical, or I mean, clearly sell, uh, financing is clearly supporting uh, Chinese state interests. Um, those conditions of competitions are completely untenable, I think, in, a, uh, in, in, a, in the ideas of free market capitalism. Um, and I do not see us changing that behavior or forcing the issue or uh, resetting those conditions of competitions without a, without a coalition, a, you know, with a foundation of a common set of principles, common set of principles that we already hold and really holding, um, holding certain companies and certain vendors and certain countries accountable uh, to those principles. I, I think that that's, that, that absolutely has to happen. I do not see um, countries going, uh, you know, onesies and twosies trying to combat that. I, I think that's, um, the bilateral approach here does not, does not work. Right. And I don't, I, I think some would prefer that it continues down a bilateral uh, approach and I don't think that's gonna work. Can I just say, like, yeah. this, this is, I mean, this kind of goes back to my initial comment, like, this is just one, this is just one aspect of the 5G issue. Right. Yeah. We're kind of going down the rabbit hole of all the right. <laughs> international relations side of it, but, I mean, that's why at the beginning I was saying, like, you have, you have these different buckets of issues, and one of it is, how do you control for these suppliers that you may view as being, you know, having issues with them, right? Or, or that, that's a specific issue. Then you have the issue of how do, you def how do you secure the network, and how do you make sure that the devices are secure, which is kind of what Travis is talking about and what we've been dealing with in terms of mm -hmm. industry standards and the CISRIC report and, and mm -hmm. those types of issues. Well, so we have, first of all, all, the, all of these companies that, all the companies that are based in, you know, rule of law based market democracies uh, compete against each other. Um, then all of those countries and governments, even if they're allies, they have different interests and they're kind of bumping against, uh, you know, different uh, equities that they're, they're trying to advance. And then even within the U.S. government, you have disagreements about where the FCC's authorities go or the role of DHS vis-a-vis -vis all the uh, other agencies. Um, you know, humanity is kind of stovepiped and territorial. So uh, how do you, how do we, specifically, how do we uh, arrange that fair competition with all these disparate groups, competing companies, 
countries that are jockeying for position um, and maybe do a speed round on this. It just what are some specific things that can be done to, to, to bring that coalition together? I don't think it's going to be that difficult. I mean, Nokia and Ericsson are, are like-minded, and, and they have the same concerns. And I think, um, you know, I think some more tighter collaboration with them, um, and even Samsung. Um, I mean, we're doing a lot of work with Samsung. So I think, you know, we all have the same goal in mind, right? And, and I think we can all benefit from some tighter collaboration. Anybody else on that? I'll go back to Commissioner Rosenworcel's comments at the beginning. I do think domestically there's, it's encouraging to see that the FCC is, is partnering with DHS and that, and that I, I noted that you mentioned that they are participating on the supply chain task force. So I, th I, think, I think there is a, a locus of activity there at the, within DHS. And, and as, if I put my communications sector hat on, we've spent a lot of time partnering with DHS on a myriad of activities there. So I think there's, a, I'm actually encouraged that there's some movement in that direction. I think there, you know, we'll see how, what, what the output of the supply chain task force is, but I think that's the right vehicle. Um, and I was encouraged that the FCC is seeing that also as, a, as an appropriate place for them to engage as well. So I think that's a move in the right direction. Uh, I honestly, you know, this might sound a little glib, but harness that tribalism. Um, I mean, I, one thing we tried to enter, you know, reinforce in discussions with industry, discussions with government. I mean, there are internecine battles between, you know, between government uh, departments and agencies. We all know this. Um, and the same thing with, you know, market competitors. Uh, the, the thing we reminded is, is we, this is infrastructure. This is stuff that we share. This is stuff that we depend on. This is risk that is going to hit us. And although, you know, there might not, you, that, you know, there is going to be at some point in time a decrease in your profits. There is going to be loss. There is going to be cost. There is going to be, whether it's, you know, public perception, whether it's in profit, whether it's in revenue, I, I, I don't know. But at some point it is going to hit you if there are security risks at play. You reinforce that. I mean, obviously, we don't want to go around fear-mongering, like banging on, a, you know, banging on a pot and pan and saying, hey, the sky is falling. But reminding people that we're, we're in this together and we're trying to protect infrastructure while also promoting you know, something, maybe appealing a little bit to patriotism, um, that, that certainly works domestically. And then when you look at a broader, um, more internationally, I should probably kick it off to Rob at this point. Really, uh, broader internationally, it's it, it's really the same thing. It's, again, we're all in this together. Risk does not stop at a um, risk does not stop at a country's borders, especially in a more globally a global interconnected world. Now, cue Rob. Yeah, I say John and I just didn't meet today. You know, like <laughs> we're part of this interagency right, right. that it thinks about things in a comprehensive way. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, as we've been talking about, it's a multifaceted uh, challenge, yeah. and uh, you know, diplomatic and, and international engagement is just one piece of that. And so, you know, we are all in the interagency bringing our best tools to the table to think about uh, which aspects of these uh, other challenges we face we can best address, and we do it in a, a cohesive manner. So, uh, I'm quite optimistic actually about our ability to, to work through these types of challenges. I'll, I'll do one more question then we'll go to the, uh, to the audience. Um, so it, it was actually really interesting to hear uh, uh, Commissioner Rosenworcel essentially endorse the, the recommendations of rechartering the CISRIC, mm -hmm. focusing more uh, uh, more deeply and on a second deep dive on 5G security issues, not just supply chain, but also the network function virtualization, IoT considerations, et cetera. Yep. Um, and also that uh, she, she sees a, a fulsome role for the FCC in this interagency effort, which again is actually what the CISRIC recommended. Mm -hmm. um, so to a skeptic who thinks that, uh, that 
you know, Huawei and ZTE are taking over this world and that the future of 5G can't be secure because, because of that. Let me just ask, is, is this process of CISRIC recommendations, engagement with DHS and, uh, and the interagency and public-private partnership, international engagement, um, is that enough? Well, so I'll take a shot at that. I'm going to separate the two issues. One issue is, who do you use as your suppliers in building out the network? And, and AT&T's announced its suppliers for its 5G network, none of which are Huawei and ZTE, none of which will be Huawei and ZTE. And so, at least for domestically, in our network, and I think I can, I don't want to speak for my brethren in the industry, but none of the major carriers, they've all made announcements in this space, and none of them have announced the use of any of those particular suppliers um, that we've been talking about on the panel. So, domestically, that, that issue has somewhat been, is somewhat going to be cared for. Now, I do think there should be a policy, and as I said, and it should be somewhat consistently applied, but, um, I, you know, I think we're definitely uh, dealing with that issue. I think that um, the international issue is more the future of the supply chain and, and what happens if the U.S. decides to forego those opportunities and other countries continue to use them and certain entities chew up market share around the world and what, what are we left with? What does that world look like in five years? That's a different question, but that's the longer term issue that's, that, that we're kind of struggling with. There's a totally separate issue around how do we secure the 5G network itself and make sure that we put in place the right practices to deal with some of the threats that we're continuing to see? And that's what I think the CISRIC work is going to, which is you know, how do you deploy a diameter? How do you build out um, the secure mobile edge? And how do you push these capabilities? You know, one thing on security we'd like to say is that because the 5G network has more integration between the edge and the core, you have better ability to monitor traffic and apply security controls, but other people would argue that creates a, dif a different risk posture. So there's one issue on the use of suppliers. There's another issue on how do you secure the 5G network itself. On the 5G network itself, I'm encouraged because of the work that's going on in groups like the CISRC, but also work that's going on in places like 3GPP, SA3, and, and those mm -hmm. types of entities. So. I think, though, I, I'll counter one thing there, because so I agree, the big four in the U.S. certainly will not be using Huawei ZTE, but the problem, though, is not the big four. Right. The problem is the 400-plus telephone companies in the United States. We're really an anomaly because I don't know of any other country that has this problem. Historically, the way that our telephone system has been built with, you know, Grandma Jones with a switchboard in her living room, and it's just been handed down generation to generation. Um, we have telephone companies with less than 1,000 subscribers in them, and Huawei is targeting those companies today. That's why you'll see Huawei is the premier sponsor of CCA. Um, they are the premier sponsor for the World Wireless Association. They're putting a bunch of money and investment in the small rural market because they see that as a way for them to get traction here in the U.S. market. Yeah, I don't disagree with that, and that's why I think they're, that's why I said earlier, there needs to be a policy because right now you, you have a lot of companies that are making these decisions, but um, you know, the policy is still being developed as best I can tell, and that's also why I think the FCC has their proceeding that's open right now on the USF issues. So. Rob, I'd love your take. Is this, an, is this enough, or does my more, more government directed action need to be taken? Uh, I, I mean, I, I think there's always a spectrum of, of activity you can mm -hmm. partake in. There's, just, there's obviously more that we need to do and more that we're going to be doing. Sounds good. All right, well, with that, I want to uh, open it up to audience questions. I think we've got about 15 minutes left. Can I get some here? We have, we have somebody right down here. Please identify yourself, and if, you, if there's a particular person that you would like to answer, ask the question. 
Hi, my name is Veronica. Thanks for being here and um, expressing your concern uh, about this topic today. This question is not directed to anyone, but if anyone can answer, um, I have a couple of questions. So, um, with all the concerns that we have um, regarding the 5G networks, how do you propose that we should translate that to the public who um, may not even know what technology is about, may not even be familiar with the, an innovative sector. And um, for those people, which is the majority of the public, then um, the convenience and the cost effectiveness would be the, their primary concern. And in that case, like you had just mentioned, um, Huawei would take a great lead on that because their stuff is a lot cheaper. And then um, my second question would be, I also attended the CSIS event yesterday um, talking about the, uh, China's digital leadership. And the statistics showed that in the US, uh, actually, let me rephrase that. In ASEAN countries, people are using technology a lot, a lot more than people here in the US. So that brings another concern because um, those people in the ASEAN countries are gonna rely on China for, to provide um, products. So th that's my second question would be, how do we retaliate against um, such a proprietary competitor? And um, I know we've talked about uh, connecting the international community, but who is willing to take that lead to uh, sort of set up the standard for the world? Thank you. Anybody want to take a stab at that? I can take the second one first, and then okay. I can maybe let the private sector guys handle the first, or John, you can jump in too. I'd just say that um, you know, one of the reasons why, with respect to your ASEAN question, that we frame this as part of a general cybersecurity concern is that we've done tremendous work with ASEAN countries on cybersecurity. You know, they're looking at tremendous economic growth going into the future in their population, so trillions of dollars of GDP is, is at stake in the digital area if it's not secure. So I think that's why we come in there and talk about how um, insecurity with digital technologies can put it jeopard put can jeopardize uh, the growth that they're they're looking at getting, particularly from digital technologies. Yeah, you know, going to your first one there with consumers. I mean, I, I, we've been struggling with this question for a while when we started looking at IoT um, because I, I mean IoT devices affect everybody, right? Um, and there's a lot of schemes that are being defined about you know, certification of an IoT product, for example. Um, but what I have found is that, you know, I go to a big box store and you'll see security cameras and I'll listen to people talking about which ones they want to buy. I have never heard in any of those conversations, you know, I think I want that one because I think it's more secure. Or, hey, you know what, that one's got that UL label on it so I feel better about buying that one. It always comes down to that's got the cheapest price. And so that's the product that I want. So I see, you know, one of the biggest risks that I see in 5G is this proliferation of IoT connected devices being introduced into the network with zero security built into them because it's all about price. Yeah, uh, speaking on behalf of DHS, um, you know, one of the one of our biggest one of our biggest missions is educating and informing the public uh, and letting them know security risks that are out there. But this isn't a new challenge. You know, stop think we've had stop think connect campaign uh, on and cyber hygiene campaigns for years in the past, and it is a constant 
never-ending battle to try to educate the general population. When, we, when DHS first started, uh, the cyber programs were first started, getting that out there and saying you know, don't use password as your password is a consistent battle. I mean, I, I don't see 5G in, in different, in, any differently. Um, I'd say the, you know, the biggest question is, is what exactly are we trying to get across to the general public about 5G? Um, if it's IoT devices, security of IoT devices, you know, don't buy an IoT device that, that you know, that has a, a, a manufactured hard-coded username and password. Otherwise, we're going to end up with, you know, a Mirai botnet again. Um, you know, but how do you translate that to the general public? I think is just really difficult. I think we're just going to have to keep reinforcing the same sort of cyber hygiene principles we have in the past. And again, s scenarios, stories, and narratives are really the most powerful way to, um, to inform the general public. I think the more important than that, though, and I, is, is getting across to C-suite and the in private industry um, the risks of, of 5G and, and to, a, to a greater degree the risks of supply chain. I mean, that is still, that's still a challenge and you have to have a much more nuanced conversation. I mean, you look at, you know, you got to hit the C-suite, you got to hit the policy people, you've got to hit the technical operators, and you got to hit the general public and making all, sure all of them understand the things that are important to them, the things that they should do or the resources available to them. It is, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of, a lot of my job is, is honestly marketing, trying to figure out how to, how to get it, how to get the message across, so. Yeah, I mean, I, I generally agree with that sentiment. If you're talking consumers, you have to look at it from the perspective of how are they going to interact with 5G. They're not going to interact with the core network. They're not going to deal with things like diameter. That's way beyond what any consumer is ever going to understand. But the way they're going to interact with the network is through the device. And so if you're going to try to communicate something to them, it's going to be at that level. So how do we go about and, you know, ensure people feel reasonably confident that the devices they're purchasing have some level of security? Mm -hmm. You know, the good news is there's a lot of ac active discussion in the industry side and with government about that issue. Um, just a couple of months ago, uh, we put out a report from an entity called, that we call the Council for Securing the Digital Economy, where um, the Consumer Technology Association and some others developed some ideas around just kind of a baseline of which, what types of security should be built into a device. Um, so there's work going on in that space, and there, there's sort of, to me, there's two questions. One is, what's the basic security, the baseline of security that should be, able to be, be built into the device? And then there's a second order question of how do you communicate that to the consumer that's buying the device, and what's the utility of that? Um, there's no perfect answer to that question yet. That's still something that's being actively discussed, but I definitely think that's the area that that part of the conversation needs to go. There is some good work being done in Addis, though, by the way, around mm -hmm. devices. Because you explain to Addis. Uh, can you explain Addis? The Alliance yeah, for Telecommunications yeah. Industry yep. Standards. Right. Yeah, I mean, one of the challenges that we faced was you know, another acronym. You don't want to have the same level of security. My my connected toothbrush doesn't need to have the same level of security as my pacemaker, for example. Um, and so there's a lot of good work going on in the standards. To first off, let's classify what these devices are. If it's a mobile device, then it probably needs a different level of security and a different treatment than my connected toothbrush or hairbrush. Um, and I think that applies in so many different areas, whether it be a, a, a laptop or a phone or any other kind of a device, right? And I think that goes a long ways to being able to educate customers. You know, that particular device is pretty critical, and so you need to have these types of things. You need to take these things into consideration. Any other questions? Oh, we have a, a, a lot. Let's, I'm not sure whose hand was up first, but I think maybe <laughs> here with the scarf. 
Hi, thanks very much. I'm Blaine Johnson from the Center for American Progress. I'm wondering, um, when you're talking about coordination between like-minded countries, what platforms are the best ways to do that? Are we talking about adding something to the WTO, or what other institutionalized ways can we go about with this coordination? Thank you. You know, frankly, a lot of our coordination happens on a, a daily basis uh, through our capitals or th from Washington, you know, directly to them. So, you know, we don't necessarily work through a multilateral institution to have uh, as a coordination mechanism. So. And, uh, I mean, cybersecurity, I mean, there's a lot of cybersecurity cooperation that goes on daily and hourly um, between, you know, DHS cybersecurity centers and national cybersecurity centers, like, overseas. I, I mean, it's, it's honestly constant contact at this point, just given the nature of the threat and the, the need to work together. So those often are the, the most um, expedient forms in which I have, have a conversation on these things. Yes, please. Uh, hi, this is Kate O'Keefe. I'm a reporter with the Wall Street Journal. Um, and I wanted to know from the US's perspective, how important uh, is it to push back against Huawei in the Indian market in particular, given the size of that market? And I was wondering if you could characterize any conversations the US and its allies may be having with India right now to engage on that issue and what the response has been. Thank you. Uh, I'm not able to, not going to characterize any particular conversations with any particular government, but I will say that, you know, over time we form close collaborations with the Indians uh, as part of our general Indo-Pacific strategy, cybersecurity, uh, just as I said with the ASEAN countries, you know, all these countries are going to see rapid um, economic growth in part based on their digital economies. So they're very interested in how they can make sure those are, are done in secure ways and they're not... Uh, disrupted and, and sort of degraded by cyber intrusion. So, um, you know, we're talking to an, them, among others, among the, the, you know, basically the whole world about our, our concerns uh, about, and, and as I said earlier, we have sort of general principles. So we're not making this about any one country, but we have, uh, uh, we've identified, we think there are certain principles that should be applied in when uh, making these decisions about procurement of next generation technologies, both on the just sort of general economic side of that, as well as with regard to um, the security that should be behind it and the trust in the, uh, the vendor and the vendor's relationship with the government where they are headquartered. India actually has already pushed back. In fact, you know, they did a number of years ago, they did a major pushback. Um, I think at that time it was mostly because of anti-competitive behaviors. Um, and they've come back again and said, no, no more Huawei ZD in these networks. So. I think they've already acted and, and, and have already been pushing back on that front. This is a good, uh, we have one minute to go and we'll do a, a, a speed round um, and we'll have to, I don't know if Jim is, is still in the room here, but we'll have to discuss this in further depth in the next uh, event um, on, these, on these issues. But uh, for all of you, are we headed to a bifurcated ICT environment that's sort of a, a tech cold war? Uh, where there's a one block that uses these types of companies and another block that uses uh, Huawei and CTE, and and all the things that go along with that. It's a really easy question, Rob. It's an easy question, <laughs> and, and, and as you would expect, I think there's an easy answer. No, there's not. I, I think that there is there is an active competition about the values that that underpin our digital economies, uh, based on how, from the most foundational things about how we treat our own citizens, about citizens' rights uh, online, about uh, censorship, about how they're treated by their government, their relationship with the state, and uh, what kinds of um, controls over data 
are then imported into such regimes. So there is an active discussion around the world. We as the U.S. government are actively out there every day aggressively uh, talking about our vision, our vision which we think will make people much more successful in the long run. But this, this competition that's going on is not something that's going to be resolved uh, tomorrow. Uh, it'll be, I think, decades. And uh, it's something that I think we constantly have to be vigilant on. And you know, we're having one conversation about next generation technology, maybe you say just on 5G today, but there's a much bigger uh, discussion, much bigger set of values that are, that are at, at stake here and that are in a very uh, active discussion at the most senior political levels. And just to add something to that, the, with, with the turbocharging of the deployment of IoT that will come with 5G comes an exponential growth in data, which is direct, directly relevant to AI and what the data is used for. And so are you guys Cold War or, or just competition? Um, I don't think anyone wants a globally bifurcated ICT ecosystem, but I will say this. Um, I don't believe the U.S. is going to allow unfettered or unmitigated presence uh, in our telecommunications network by a company control with a form, by a foreign power with whom we have long-term strategic competition and questionable rule of law. And I think that that's that's like that's that's a, as a basic principle. Um, you know, I, I feel like Rob's echo up here, uh, but. It, there's a, I mean, there's a long-term strategic competition um, with China, and it's going to present, and we are very entangled with them, and that includes technological entanglement. Um, the issue that we have is China is you know, blocking access or mitigating market access to our technolog technology companies at the same time they're pushing theirs, not only globally, but uh, you know, deeper and deeper into U.S. markets. That creates a massive asymmetric vulnerability that, you know, that is very concerning to the U.S. government. Um, uh, at the same time, we need to keep our moral authority and stay true to American principles of free market capitalism and, uh, and, and democracy and not go, not go into authoritarian routes. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's difficult and it's going you know, to require a lot of hard conversations, a lot of hard decisions. But I do not believe anyone wants a bifurcated system. But we have to maintain our national security and, and our principles as a nation. Chris and Travis, anything to add? Two minutes I mean, over, so you get a pass if you don't. Yeah, I mean, I certainly hope we don't end up in that place. But I think, I think 5G is just one manifestation of a broader set of issues. I mean, this whole this is the same issue that comes up in discussions around things like cross-border data flows and uh, localization controls and those types of things. It's coming up in a lot of context. Uh, so I'm encouraged that the U.S. government is kind of taking some leadership in that space, and there's been some movement to deal with those issues. So I hope we don't end up there. You know, we'll see what happens, right? All right. Yeah, I think it's competition. I mean. And we're seeing that, and we're seeing countries now are are starting to rethink some of their own policies um, as they start to reconsider, you know, the security questions, and, and certainly around privacy. You know, I mean, that's what we saw in the European Union when they were trying to deal with the SS7 stuff. They said, really, this is a privacy breach, and now we have GDPR. Um, so I think there's a lot of that discussion going on globally, and companies are starting to think, well, you know. We've got other choices. Do we want to make a decision based on price? Or do we want to pay a little bit extra and know that we don't have to be looking over our shoulders all the time? Great. Well, thank you all. Thanks for being here. To the folks who are watching online, uh, I think we have uh, well over 300 people who are either here or online. Um, and thank you to you all. Uh, great panel. Thanks to Commissioner Rosenworcel and her uh, terrific staffer, Umar, Umar Javed. Um, 
for a great discussion, which will continue. So thank you all. Thanks for joining us for another curated conversation from CSIS. Tune in next week for more, and remember, you can explore all of our events online at CSIS.org.